Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gohm. I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly... The Bordeaux AOC has made a landmark decision, adding seven new grapes to the approved list of varieties that may be used for Bordeaux wines. Chateau Lafitte's owners, Domaine Baron de Rothschild, reveal their first Chinese wine to be released in September. The Must Fermenting Ideas Wine Summit unites experts from all sectors of the industry to exchange ideas and discuss the future of wine. And as ever, our Wine of the Week. In France, the wine producer syndicates for Bordeaux and Bordeaux Supérieur voted on and unanimously approved the inclusion of seven new grape varieties to the wines of the Appellation Controlé. The new varieties include four black grapes, Arena Noa, Toriga Nacional, Marcelan, and Castet, and three whites, Alvarino, Petit Mansang, and this one's a mouthful, Liliorida. While plantings of the new varieties, which is expected to commence in the 2020-2021 growing season, will be limited to 5% of any grower's total vineyard area, up to 10% of total production may be used in the final blends. The decision comes in the midst of a national heat wave, and the approved selection of new grapes, two of which are Portuguese in origin, is evidently a move to cope with the scorching temperatures that other European countries have felt in recent weeks as well. There is talk that the AOC will go even further in terms of grapes allowed, as there is more to do in order to combat the effects of climate change, one solution being the addition of hybrid varieties, which today are only allowed for IGP wines. If that motion does come to the table, changes will have to be made at a higher level, requiring a change to the European Union's common agricultural policy. So Matthew, we know that Bordeaux is not a region eager for change. For instance, the ranking system they use today for the Cru Classés is still based on the 1855 classification that was put in place by Napoleon III. So, for a region so set in its ways, the producers must be facing some serious issues in the vineyard to push them to make changes like this. Why don't you take us through why they selected these grapes and what they hope to achieve with these additional plantings? Yes, it's fascinating the grapes they have chosen, because the French grapes are quite obscure, certainly not well known to the average consumer, and they all originate from southwest France, near Bordeaux. And then there's two Portuguese grape varieties which are much more well-known, much more famous, Alvarino and Torriga Nacional, but of course not French. And it's quite incredible that there'll be non-French grapes planted in Bordeaux. Very surprising. Yeah. But they're very high quality, so it's actually very exciting as well. So let's have a, take a quick look at those grape varieties and what they bring to the table. So we have Alvarino, which comes from Portugal, also grown across the border in Spain, and that's resistant to rot which is very important in Bordeaux. Uh, so it's used to the maritime conditions of Bordeaux, but um, usually warmer. Then there's Petit Mansong, which comes from Jurançon in the Pyrenees, which makes fabulous sweet wine. So again, another exciting high-quality addition. And then more obscurely, there's a Lily Orilla, which is a crossing from 1956 of Baroque and Chardonnay. And this is early ripening, low yields, with small bunches and berries. And it produces powerful aromatic wines, but though with relatively low acidity. So that could be an interesting addition to blends. And then for the black grapes, Torriga Nacional is one of the great grapes of Portugal and certainly will be a high quality addition to a Bordeaux blend. It does have low yields and is quite difficult to work with. So I can only imagine it being used in small amounts, even if the um, limitations on the plantings of these grapes um, are removed over time if they become successful. 
And then much more obscurely are the other three grapes. Marceline is perhaps the best known. It's a crossing of Cabernet Sauvignon and Garnacha from 1961. and has small berries, high quality, and it's disease resistant, which is important in um, Bordeaux. And it's also mid to late ripening, which is why these grapes are being brought in. And this is aromatic, deeply coloured, with supple talons and ageing potential. Arinon Noah is a crossing of Tanat and Cabernet Sauvignon from 1956. And this is another late ripening grape, which is thick skinned and resistant to rot. And it's grown across southwest France and can be quite similar to Cabernet Franc in its style. Then finally, Castet, this is the, um, the most minor of all the grapes. That's most surprising that, that it's been allowed. Uh, it is resistant to downy, though not powdery mildew. And it's late budding, mid ripening, high in alcohol, deep in colour, and very little of it planted. So you mentioned a lot of late ripening grapes there. So what do you think they're hoping, hoping to achieve with that? lower alcohol levels? Well, interestingly, in, the, in response to this news, I read someone saying that in the right bank of Bordeaux, where Merlot dominates, Merlot is actually being replaced by Cabernet Sauvignon, because up until this point, Cabernet Sauvignon has never been able to ripen successfully on the right banks. So that's why Merlot and Cabernet Franc, which are earlier ripening, um, dominate in the plantings. So the fact that Cabernet Sauvignon is being planted there you can there's much more possibility to work with later ripening grapes in Bordeaux than there was previously. So all these late ripening, ripening grapes in the warmer conditions, they won't ripen too early and you still get complexity from them. I also saw an interesting comment by Amber Lebeau of Spitbucket Blog on Twitter responding to the news, saying that it highlights how much of an advantage that New World regions have to plant whatever they want. So true. And when you look at other European countries dealing with these heat waves, do you think we will see more of these changes in the near future? It's quite possible, though it must be remembered that the Van de France appellation does allow producers to do pretty much whatever they like, as long as the, the grapes come from France. And so there is a lot of experimentation with different grape varieties under that appellation, particularly in the Loire Valley. Burgundy is the interesting place to look out for because that's even more conservative than Bordeaux. Just to give an idea of how temperatures have changed in Burgundy, the average temperature in Alsace is now what it was in Burgundy in the 1980s. So if you want to have an idea of what red Burgundy tasted like 30 years ago, go to Alsace rather than Burgundy. That's how much has changed. So what's going to happen in the next 30 years? Is it going to become too warm for Pinot Noir? Will Syrah migrate northwards? Certainly, I'd be interested to see what Syrah will taste like in Beaujolais with similar soils to the Northern Rhone, and maybe it will go even further as the climate warms. Chateau Lafitte's owners, Domaine Baron de Rothschild, have revealed the name of their new Chinese wine, which will be released for the first time this September. Called Long Dai, after the name of the property Domaine de Long Dai, the 2017 vintage is a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, Marcelin, and Cabernet Franc, which were all planted in 2011. The property is located in Qushan Valley, which has granite soils and terrace slopes, and which is found in the northeastern Shadong province. The price has not yet been disclosed, but the wine will initially only be released in China, two and a half thousand cases made solely for the domestic market. With the use of French oak barrique for 18 months, Bordeaux varieties, and the Rothschild name on the label, Long Dai will certainly appeal to the ever-growing demand for fine wine in the Chinese market. So how long has this project been in the works? Well, this was initially a joint venture between uh, the Rothschild family and a big Chinese firm. Uh, that firm actually pulled out, but this began in the late 2000s. And as I mentioned, the vines were first planted in 2011. So it's been a good 10 years in the making. 
And the 2017 vintage is the first release, so they allowed the vines to uh, grow for six years before working with them properly. And then the 18 months aging in oak. And even though the wine is being um, sold in September, it won't actually be available for pickup until November. So they're really taking their time over this. So why do you think they're doing this? China's been quite happy paying a lot of money for Bordeaux, so why establish a winery there in the country? Well, it's the uh, authenticity of having a wine from China itself, and I think it's a status symbol for China to uh, be reproducing its own wine, and also having Bordeaux investors come in, so it really um, makes Chinese wine look a lot better. And there's a long tradition of French wineries investing in other countries, California, Chile, Argentina, for instance, even Brazil really looking to see what will be the, the, the future of wine. And China is certainly um, an important country over the next uh, few decades. And should mean a lot of money for the Rothschilds as well, uh, seeing as they'll be controlling every aspect of the supply chain, plus the high price of the wine, should mean a very pretty profit. Yeah, and not forgetting uh, fraud as well. Being in control of everything from start to finish within China should really help uh, the Rothschilds control authenticity of their product. The third annual Must Fermenting Ideas Conference took place over the course of three days at the end of June in Cascais, Portugal. Set up as a worldwide forum for media and wine trade attendees to touch on the major issues facing the industry today. Climate change, biodiversity, organics, natural wine, consumer data, DTC, social media, and more. Speakers included Miguel Torres, president of Familia Torres, who also organized the climate change course in Siches, Spain, in early April, as well as industry futurist and thought leader Paul Mabry, Miningers editor Felicity Carter, New York Times chief wine critic Eric Asimov, and other industry leaders. The conversation that took place extended far beyond the walls of the Cascade Beachside Resort in southern Portugal into the wine Twitter sphere, so that the messaging reached a much broader audience. Matthew, what were some of the themes or topics that stood out to you in monitoring the Twitter conversations? The topic of uh, communications and how good or bad the wine industry is at communicating um, itself to wine consumers, the everyday uh, drinker. Yes, I remember seeing something about uh, WSET and how they're training trade professionals to speak with a certain language and how that might not be the best way to communicate to the end consumer. Yeah, I think this is an issue in any, any trade. Um, every business, every industry has its own language. Which jargon they, is what they call it. Jargon, or even trade talk, some might say. And that's how people communicate to each other within the industry. But you have to find ways to communicate to people outside the industry as well. And I actually think that's something that WSET try and teach their students to do. It's just that wine has this kind of reputation around the world as being something intangible, something ethereal, something intellectual, which we have to use very advanced vocabulary for. But in actual fact, there's certainly a strong argument for saying that for the everyday consumer, just using language they understand is all important. Well, I'm sure this is a debate that will continue on for some time. And for a great recap of the event and in-depth coverage on all of the major themes and topics discussed, check out reporting by Richard Siddle on thebuyer.net. Uh, who has already published the first of a series of three articles on the conference. So now for our wine of the week. What is it, Katie? Well, it's the Dirty and Rowdy Especial 2018. So this is a Mavedra from the Rodnick Farm Vineyard. 
and it's delicious. A bit carbonic, but man, it's good. Yes, so for those of you outside of California who don't know about Dirty and Rowdy, they're a fun, uh, very fashionable winery, and they really focus on Morvedra. And so they actually make nine or ten different Morvedras each year, which is a great variety that really um, wasn't very well known in California until they took it up. And if you think of Movedra as this meaty, dark fruit, big wine, which is what most people might know it as, this is nothing like that. So with that carbonic uh, aspect of it, it makes it very fruity, very light, something you could enjoy even on a warm day. Yeah, like today. It's 2018 and um, very youthful, very approachable. And you uh, recently interviewed Hardy Wallace of Dirty and Rowdy, didn't you, on your podcast? I did, and that's going to be released simultaneously with this podcast, so you can just jump from one to the other without any uh, break. Look forward to it. Yeah, he's a fascinating guy. Well worth a listen. Cheers to that. So that's it for this week's Wind Up Weekly. Join us next week. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gorn. Thanks for listening. See you next time.